a trigger warning for today's show. We are talking binge eating and how the lure of food can trap you, but how you can set yourself free. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I am Alex Stewart, your host, and I am welcoming you to show 318. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time to leave reviews. I saw a few great new reviews on iTunes uh, just this week. Uh, and I cannot thank you enough also for sharing shows that really move the needle for you with your friends and family, whether that be on socials or privately. Uh, I was tagged just the other day by someone who found uh, Ali Walker's show, which is the one previous to this one, about different personality types to be a huge aha for her as she tried to uh, navigate life with one child that feels like an alien to her and another child of hers that she feels like they're two peas in a pod. And she found the framework really helpful. So I'm so thankful that people take the time to let me know how shows impact you because it means we know what to produce more of for you guys. Uh, and if you haven't taken our listener survey, please head to the show notes lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on today's show. It's right up there on top and uh, it asks you which topics you need more support with, what your wish list is in terms of speakers joining me on the show and uh, all that jazz. So you can head over there and uh, do that. Now today we are talking about binge eating. And I wanted to do a show like this because I actually found a fantastic psychologist who leads from the heart, tons of compassion, kindness, uh, Glenn Livingston, who's my guest today. Uh, but I also wanted to do a show on this because often, even if you go down the healthy food road, uh, let's say you're ditching all your ultra processed foods the obsession can just switch to uh, making treats with tons of dates and honey. And then we're like, why aren't I feeling better? And why aren't I uh, losing the weight that I want to lose? Uh, and we can actually be just perpetuating the same stuff with uh, just a different looking type of scenario. And uh, as someone who has been a cereal fridge browser in the past or cereal snacker. Uh, it's something that I've often pondered, like how do we actually change and make it stick in this space? And how do we uh, not end up stressing ourselves out even more about something we're doing wrong in this uh, uh, ecosystem of wellness where so often we are thinking or telling ourselves a story that what we're doing is wrong, right? And we have to do this, otherwise we won't survive. We All these toxins are killing us. And uh, 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 uh. But stress will kill us more than anything else. And, uh, and Glenn has a beautiful way of helping us navigate something that many of us want to do better at, 
uh, less reaching for food for boredom, for nothing to do while cooking, and then you kind of inadvertently eat a whole meal's worth while tasting things and just raising that awareness around where we might be picking up extra calories that we're not uh, needing uh, or even just having a tendency towards foods that we know aren't the best for us uh, that we can end up in a cycle of binge. And so um, Glenn is a psychologist. Uh, He's been a psychologist for many decades. He's actually worked in the food industry and we talk about that uh, today. Uh, he's been on tons of shows, a lot of news segments on binge eating. And what I love is that he has not just spent decades, uh, helping people with binge eating, but he's done concrete research. He's run a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. So from that data, he has learned a lot about what really works for people, what does not, and how to move the needle on the reliance towards food as habit, as uh, emotional crutch, uh, whatever uh, that food represents in your life as excess. Uh, and so he's also had a personal journey uh, out of obesity and what he calls a food prison to just having a normal, healthy weight and managing um, a much more lighthearted relationship with food. So I want to be really clear that this is not fat shaming. This is not about curing uh, eating disorders either. If you have a medical condition that you're working on with a doctor, a psychiatrist or psychologist, please continue to do that work. But it is an exploration and an offering. If this is a thing for you that you think, oh, I wonder if I, yeah, maybe, uh, that this show will really help. He's a, a wonderful man and I, I really found it to be a super joyful and productive conversation with a lot of helpful tips and things to explore. So I'm going to cut into that uh, wonderful conversation in just a minute. I want to remind you that we have a wonderful Oz Climate, who are our major sponsor here on the podcast, giving you 10% off. This is for the Aussies. Uh, they're excellent dehumidifiers and Winix air purifiers all year round for 2023 as well. And uh, I actually just took delivery of my new f- air filter toy, uh, which is the Mac Daddy air filter that they have in the Winix range that has a specific pet filter. Uh, some of you may know that a few months ago we rescued our gorgeous buddy, who was 14 months at the time, a retriever. Uh, and golden retrievers have gorgeous golden locks, but it also <laughs> means we have... Ah, gorgeous golden hair everywhere at the couple of times a year where they shed their coats to um, adapt to what the weather's doing. And uh, I I reached my end point with that shedding a couple of weeks ago. I thought, this is it. It's time. So if you feel like you need a pet filter, just letting you know that their five-stage air filter from the Winix range with the pet filter that has an exclusive, its own little compartment, and it's crazy how much that accumulates – uh, then there's that. Uh, but of course, if you are living in a humid space or if you've noticed uh, by having a hygrometer, which you can pick up at the uh, hardware store and seeing that regularly the humidity in the climate you're living in or the time of year it is or the type of house you have where there might be a big shady area, 
uh, that doesn't get much sun is regularly over 60%, then you want to look at dehumidification. Prevention is the best treatment when it comes to mold. So head to ozclimate.com.au and check out their range. Now, our other sponsor helping us put this show on this month is the wonderful BioFirst. And they have done a, a value pack, a kids remedy set with a saving of 20% off the full price if you were to buy those uh, products individually. And I say kids, but we actually ended up using the, um, the kids Manuka defense spray for my husband this week, who just came down with a crazy sore throat. And I got him to completely bathe his throat in the Manuka defense oral spray, which by the way, tastes delicious. And lo and behold, two days later, his throat is fine. So you can steal these from your kids if you need to, because they work just as well for adults. Uh, so in this set is the ultra sensitive skin rescue lotion. So think if you, um, have kids who have eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis, uh, maybe break out in hives. It is one of the most unbelievable formulations. It is so calming, so protective. And people are raving about it who've already had a chance to try. It's very new. Then there's the self-heal salve, which is your kind of uh, first aid SOS um, salve uh, for bumps and bruises and cuts. And then the Kids Manuka Soother Syrup. And then the one I mentioned before, the Defense Oral Spray. So it's a great back to school. You know, a lot of kids picking up a lot of germs, playing with a lot of people more than normal. Uh, especially more than the summer holidays where you tend to be with just one or two people, a few friends at the same time. Now it's everybody together in the classroom. This could be the thing for you. So you can look up the Kids Remedy Set and BioFirst on Google and it'll come straight up or you can follow the link in our show notes or Instagram bio if you'd prefer to do that. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that and the Oz Climate offer. Uh, a note to our American listeners, BioFirst ship internationally to you guys as well. So that's a great one for you. Now let's speak with Glenn Livingston and let's talk binge eating. Hello, Glenn. How are you? I'm very good, Alex. I've been looking forward to talking to you all week. Oh, set up to wonderful. Do that. I am really excited to speak with you as well, because this is a topic that it affects many of us at different stages of life or chronically. And often there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of failure. There's a lot of pleasure. And there's just this swing of emotions if we're binge eating. Uh, and I really want to unpack it, help people feel supported, find a way through. And you just have this way of speaking about this subject, I've read your book, uh, that really helps people get super clear on a plan forward so that they can put it behind them. Thank you. Uh, yeah. That's the idea. Thank yeah, you. exactly. Right. Um, so why are overeaters stress eating, binge eating? Why is it so prevalent in our culture today? I mean, I speak about ultra processed food and food marketing quite a bit through my books and um, and socials, that's part of it, but there's a lot more, right? Well, I mean, just to not gloss over that, the mm. big food industry I used to work for big yeah. food. Um, the big food industry is concocting these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and excitotoxins and chemicals that turn off your ability to feel full, and it's targeted at the reptilian brain 
with, um, without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. So they're trying yeah. to hit your bliss point without giving you the nutrition. So of course you're going to want more and more and more. And the advertising industry knows what they're doing. And most people think that uh, advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you think that because your sales resistance is down. Yeah. The, um, the treatment community, um, I believe is giving us the wrong advice. They look at overeating as a chronic, progressive, mysterious uh, disease that, you know, supposed to be doing push-ups in the closet when you're not working on it. And, um, you know, and they're, they're, they're pushing a treatment, which really has no evidence of success, mm -hmm. more or less the, the largest part of the treatment community. Um, most therapists are not really aware of the evidence-based protocols that are actually are working. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's just a perfect storm. And you can walk out of a McDonald's and there's another McDonald's across the street these days. So um, what do you expect? Yeah, what, that's what it. We're setting up the culture of failure, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and everybody seems to tacitly agree to commit slow suicide with food while we joke around about it. Um, while, you know, diabetes is 80% higher than it was 15, 20 years ago. And, um, cardiovascular disease is double. It, it's just horrendous, just mm. horrendous across the board. So and it's a perfect storm. Yeah, it is. And and you mentioned that you worked for Big Food. Uh, how does one extricate oneself? Like, did you have an aha? Like, did it just start to feel dirty? Was there something that progressively <coughs> niggled away at your soul? I mean, I'm sure oh. it was a pretty big thing to move away. I, I mean, I, I do feel a little bit like the Marlboro man at the end of his life mm. where he became contrite and apologized for what he'd done. Um, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I, I didn't work. I wasn't an employee. I was a consultant. So I had other clients as well. So it wasn't like I was totally entrenched there and it wasn't that hard to get out when I really wanted to get out. The way I justified it was that I'm going to get a position of power and I'm going to influence these people to sell healthier things and, um, you know, infuse vitamins into their work. And it, I never really got that position of power and the economic forces, which reward these people and reinforce their behavior mm -hmm. are just too strong. Like they're not, they're usually not bad people and they look at their job as just being to create fun foods that, people really enjoy and giving the market what it wants. Um, but you know what? Winston Churchill said that capitalism was the worst form of government except for all the others. And mm. I think in a capitalist, in a capitalist government, what sells wins. Mm. And you know, what sells is the most calories in the smallest space for the least money with the most attractive advertising, not what's really in your children's best interest or in your best interest. So um yeah, over time, I I um, became more and more upset with it. And, um, you know, they, they threw a lot of money at us, but it didn't really matter. And uh, when I got divorced was when I really said no more. When I got divorced, I said, I'm not going to, I don't have all these bills. I don't have to do this and I'm not going to do it. So. Mm. It's, it's interesting. Breakups uh, and big life changes in one area can create a desire for a full cleanse of one's life and an examination of everything, right? Well, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. No, it also creates an opportunity. I mean, I, I wish I could say I had enough of a moral character to stop complete. I mean, I mostly stopped maybe 10 years before that, but not completely. And I, I wish I could say that I had that moral character that I did that. But when you've got to spend $500,000 a year, it's, um, it's, you can't make that as a therapist. It's, no. you, you got to do something different. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, you also mention in, uh, it, when you speak about this subject that you have a personal relationship with binge eating. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> right. And, you know, so often we we're like, oh, you know, do as the therapist says, but it is so much easier when we know that they're human as well. And they come from a place of personal pain and self-discovery on, on that journey. And then the mess becomes the message, right? Uh, the mess becomes the message. I haven't heard that before. Um, I certainly was a mess. I, mm -hmm. I, I was almost 300 pounds. I stopped weighing myself at 257, so I don't have the exact number for you, but I, I was almost 300 pounds. Um, I had psoriasis and rosacea, and my triglycerides were over 1,000. And they, the doctors were telling me I would die by the time I was 35. They, they really were yelling at me and telling me I was going down the wrong road. But I, I felt like I couldn't stop. Um, when I was a boy, I discovered that if I worked out hard for two hours a day, I could eat what I wanted to. Mm -hmm. So I'd probably eat about 5,000 calories of Pop-Tarts and pizzas and muffins. And I thought it was great. I didn't think it was a problem. And I was thin until I was married and commuting two hours each way to go to graduate school and see patients. And then I get home and God forbid my wife wanted to talk to me. <laughs> um, I just didn't have time to work out, you know, but the the food had a hold of me and it kept going. And I, um, I went down a traditional psychological route. I'm, you know, a psychologist and also my parents are both psychologists and my sister and my in-laws and, um, you know, everybody in the family, if something breaks, they ask it how it feels. They don't really know how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a very default psychological perspective. So I, I tried to love myself then I figured I must have a hole in my heart. And if I could fill that hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach. Mm. Um, but but it was the wrong approach for me. It, it took like 30 years to figure that out. Um, I went to Overdue's Anonymous. I went to see all these different psychiatrists and psychologists. And I took medication and I went to nutritionists and um, I did everything you could imagine. And I, I don't regret it because it made me a more soulful person. But uh, by the same token, it was... Um, I, I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner and a lot fatter. And in my late 30s, early 40s, I started thinking a little differently. I started shifting the paradigm because I said these external forces, these you know billions of dollars that are going into engineering those, you know, those hyperpalatable concoctions that are addicting me, um, and the advertising. I said that has nothing to do with whether my mama dropped me on my head or I'm unhappy in the marriage, yeah. you know, they're, they're targeting the lizard brain. Mm. Oh, oh, and, and in neuroanatomy, the reptilian brain doesn't really know love. I mean, there's yeah. some controversy, but the reptilian brain looks at things in the environment and says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's mm -hmm. a bad college drinking game. It's like eat, mate, <laughs> or kill. <laughs> it's, well it's, explained. So, so if, if if this is the reptilian brain, it's the mammalian brain on top of that that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have in your 
family, what impact will, will it have on the people that you love? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that is in your cortex that says, wait a minute, what impact will that have on your long-term goals, what you're trying to accomplish, the person you're trying to be? Mm -hmm. um, and so I said, so I'm busy trying to love myself thin, but the part of the brain that responds to food addiction doesn't know love. It's eat, mate, or kill. So maybe this is more of an alpha wolf approach that would be effective. Maybe I need to be more of the alpha dog in my own brain as opposed to the um, nurturing the inner wounded child back to health. Mm -hmm. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It snarls and it growls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what I eventually did was kind of crazy and I wasn't going to publish this. This was my own recovery. Um, I decided that I needed a way to know when my, when my reptilian brain was active because if I didn't know if it was active, I couldn't do anything about it. So I said, I'm going to give it a name and I wish I named it something different, but I called it my inner pig. Mm -hmm. It's just what, just what I did back then. And I would make a very clear rule so that I would recognize a thought that should be coming from the reptilian brain. Like I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. Mm -hmm. And then if I heard a little voice in my head, when I was at Starbucks, that said, look at that chocolate bar on the counter, you worked out hard enough, even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain any weight, start your silly diet again tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. Chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as crazy as it sounds, I would, it, it would give me those extra microseconds. It would wake me up and give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would make the right decision. Sometimes I wouldn't, but I was awake again. It kind of interfered with the automaticity of the habit. Mm -hmm. And slowly over time, I played with the rules. I played with different techniques for really waking up and slowing down when, you know, the impulse would hit and I had success. Um, and over the course of uh, eight years, I kept a journal of everything the pig would say and why it was wrong. So mm -hmm. it would say, just start your silly diet tomorrow. Um, I would say, well, wait a minute. If I have a craving for chocolate today and I say, just start again tomorrow, and then I have chocolate, I'm rewarding the craving and I'm rewarding the thought. So I'm more likely to have the thought, let's start again tomorrow, tomorrow, and it's going to be a deeper craving. You can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. And if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging. Mm -hmm. So I would have these elaborate, I call them refutations now. I didn't really know what to call them back then. But I have these elaborate explanations for why the pig was wrong. And I found that the better explanation I came up with, the more... Uh, easily I could ignore the impulse. Um, and over time, you know, there, there were 30 or 40 different um, attempts that the pig would make in different ways and 30 or 40 different uh, refutations, you know, ways mm -hmm. to disempower that grease shoot. And that's what became the book. Like, uh, you know, eight years later, I was thin and better and healthy and energetic and I had my life back. Um, and I, I had my life back from the food obsession also, by the way. It turns out that when you make your difficult decisions ahead of time with your intellect, that there's less to think about with food. Yeah. And so you, you stop obsessing about it all the time, which was even, it was even more important to me than the, um, than the weight. 
Mm. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah, it's it's making me think of um, James Clear's work with the habit stacks, like if you plan it ahead and in advance, then mm-hmm. it's just a system and it just unfolds. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I was thinking about as you were talking about how you woke uh woke yourself up to the impulses. Um, I remember when I was quitting smoking, when I was successful back in 2004, I actually armed myself with the three most disgusting memories of other people smoking as I grew up. (laughs) My French teacher breathing over my neck as she checked my work with her coffee cigarette breath or uh, this guy that I kissed in 10th grade who had had a cigarette and it was just like, so I remembered those things. And I thought, you're not a smoker, silly. That's disgusting. And like, it really helped in those early days to bring that armor in and, um, and override the impulse. Yeah. You know how I got my grandmother to stop smoking cigarettes? How'd you do it? I threatened to pee on them. I told her (laughs) she wished she wouldn't know whether I did or I didn't. But I was gonna. I, I might. I might pee on her cigarettes, and then she couldn't. She couldn't. She couldn't and that's smoke disgusting, anymore. right? Yeah, that's pretty disgusting. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. I was only ten, by the way. I was not a not not a grown doctor or anything like that. Well, that's maybe. a very cute, well-meaning child wanting to stop their family member from doing something she, bad. She didn't think it was so cute, but she was happy about it in the end. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. So you get to this place where you think you've got something that you can share with others and it's it's really um, well organised in the book, but I just want to unpack a couple of things before we head there. Sure, no rush. Which is how, how do we know we're actually in overeating or binge eating territory other than the usual, you know, putting on weight and feeling sluggish uh, you talked about raising your awareness uh, and that being a crucial step to um, to waking up and changing in your own personal life. But we're not all the same and it's not going to look the same for everybody. And some people might feel like, but I'm super healthy. Uh, what are the, can, can we quiz ourselves? Can we ask ourselves a few questions? Well, I, I mean, I actually wrote an article for Psychology Today about this because everybody wants to know, am I in trouble or not? <laughs> yeah. And, and um, if you look at the definition of binge eating, mm. like you just have to Google DSM-5 binge eating and you'll find a set of criteria that define what a binge eating is. It has to do with feeling out of control and having feelings of disgust about yourself and mm. the frequency of the episodes and things like that. Um about 2% of the population, between 2 and 4%, depending on what study you look at, has the criteria for binge eating. However, according to the World Health Organization, 40% of the American population is obese, is obese. Mm-hmm. And, you know, diabetes is up by 80% and cardiovascular disease is doubled and diet reversible or preventable forms of cancer are also up. And, and so if 40% of us are suffering from that, is it wise to keep eating until we meet the criteria for binge eating? Or mm. is it smarter to say, especially for something like this, which is um, it's non-invasive, non-intrusive, it's not a medical intervention. No one's going to cut you open and do something with your stomach or you don't have to take a pill. Yeah. Uh, so for something like this, isn't it better to say, do I ever eat beyond my own best judgment? 
that will ever eat something and, and say, I wish I didn't do that. I should have stopped at one or I should have stopped at three, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you have that experience, I can help you. Like if yeah. it, there, there's, um, there's a set of techniques you can learn, a set of mental tools that you can learn to eat within your own best judgment. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, I think the definition of real addiction, not, not the medical definition of addiction, but the definition of real addiction is the inability to eat within your own best judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's where the trouble starts. There's a continuum of how bad that is. I mean, there are people who have 20,000 calories a day and gain 20 pounds, pounds a month. And there are people who have, you know, an extra donut on the weekend and feel like they want to kill themselves. So um, it's, it's very subjective in a way. And I, and I kind of prefer it that way because then when it bothers you, people will, when it, if it bothers you, then you should do something about it. That's, um, that's what I say. Yeah. Does that no. make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, but is there an unhealthy version from a psychological perspective of it bothers me when you chastise yourself for like having a dessert at a restaurant on a special occasion? Um, like that's not good to focus on either, right? The one-off right. Right. pleasurable experience well, well, socially. Right. And I'll, you know, I'm in favor of making rules rather than guidelines for mm. a number of reasons. However, I'm not in favor of the self-castigation. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like I'm in favor of aiming at a crystal clear bullseye like an Olympic archer might do. Mm-hmm. But even the best Olympic archer only hits the bullseye 30 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So but when they do hit the bullseye, when they do miss the bullseye, they know by how much in what direction and how to make adjustments for it. So so um, you could think of missing the bullseye like um, like accidentally touching a hot stove. Mm-hmm. And if you accidentally touch a hot stove, you want to feel the pain, right? Because if you don't feel the pain, you're gonna you're gonna walk into the hot stove again. That there are kids born with disorders where they can't feel pain, and they walk into all the sharp corners and they cut themselves open to see what's going on. It's it's uh we don't keep those kids alive for more than four or five years. Mm-hmm. So if you if you touch a hot stove, you want to figure out why. How are you going to avoid it the next time? And then you want to let it go. You don't want to say, oh, my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. Um, I might as well put my whole hand down it because I can't stop, right? Mm. That, that's reptilian brain activity. The only purpose with regards to food, oh, my God, I'm a pathetic overeater. I'm always going to be fat. I can't do this. The only purpose of that talk is to make you feel too weak to resist the next binge. So excessive guilt, excessive, excessive negative self-talk really has no place um, in helping people recover. What you want to do when you make a mistake is collect evidence of success. Did you have five cupcakes instead of 15, right? Did you stop the binge after two hours instead of two days? What, what and, and how did you do that? You don't want to ask, why can't I stop? Because the questions we ask determine the evidence we collect and the evidence collects in terms of our identity. If you say, why can't I stop? Your brain is going to be looking for reasons you can't stop and you'll develop a failure identity. If you say, how can I stop? What did I do right? Then your brain is going to look for evidence of success and, and develop a success identity. So um, that's huge. What you've just said, that's massive. It's massive. Oh, th- and this is the major shift. If you don't remember mm. anything else, Remember, mm-hmm. look for evidence of success. No matter how bad the binge was, look for evidence of success. Mm. Yeah, I think we could apply that to so many areas of our lives. 
it's a general coaching principle. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Love that. Um, Okay. So we're developing a personal awareness. We're collecting evidence of success. Um, Are there particular triggers that might be more bio-individual that we also need to be aware of, like stressful situations that come up in our lives at different times, hormonal shifts for women, I'm thinking during perimenopause or teen years. Oh, you you definitely want to keep a journal and Mm. figure out what are the stimuli that seem to trigger the memories and these automatic habits. I am... I'm very sensitive about the language that we use to describe this. Mm -hmm. So in our culture, there's a very passive language that's taken hold. We'll say the smell of the pizza triggered me, right? It it doesn't. I see what you're saying. So instead of saying, I smelt the pizza and I got triggered. I smelt the pizza and even more than I got triggered, I smelt the pizza and the smell of the pizza reminded me of how delicious it was the in the past and how much I used to love overeating it. And I made a conscious decision to reverse my previously best intent and eat the pizza. Mm-hmm. It, now, it sounds like that would make you feel guilty, and it will a little bit. You're going to feel that little pain there touching the hot stove. But what you gain by doing that is uh, an opportunity to insert yourself between stimulus and response the next time. When you recognize that there were a bunch of decision points, every one of those decision points is a lever that you can pull to break this automaticity habit. So the passive language, I got triggered, the binge happened when, um, it's seductive because it alleviates a sense of guilt and responsibility. Mm. But without that sense of guilt and responsibility, you can't change. So (laughs) We've learned uh, this language from politics, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh That's my funny. goodness! I'm just—it's <laughs> yeah. really this this remo- this subtle removal of personal responsibility um, happens from the top. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, it really feels automatic. Mm. So, but part of the problem with addiction is that the brain is set up to find automatic habits. Yeah, um, because it conserves energy and we needed to kind of automatically find the food and nutritional sources. And so when we locate a stimuli, like Mm -hmm. candy bar wrapper, that seems to signal the availability of energy, the candy bar itself. Um, And we, after the course of several times, found that that signal to be reliable. There's an automaticity that develops and it feels automatic, see the candy bar wrapper, eat the candy bar. the brain saves a lot of energy by making that an automatic habit. Mm-hmm. However, you can intervene in that. You can turn off that automaticity. You can, um, if you make a rule that says, I will never have a candy bar during the week or I'll never eat candy bars again if you want to, you can then wake up when you hear that voice in your head that says, oh, come on, one bite's not going to hurt right? You say, no, wait a minute. I made a rule that says I don't eat candy bars. Um, So candy bars to me are, I call it slop. You can call it whatever you want to. And I'm not going to listen to the reptilian brain. I'm going to follow my upper brain. You can take some deep breaths. We like to call them 7-Eleven breaths. 
Mm -hmm. Breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, because that signals your emergency response system that there's no emergency. See, if a hungry bear was chasing you, um, you'd be going, Mm. you wouldn't have time to take a deep breath in and let it out slowly. Uh, So that takes you from your sympathetic nervous system, the emergency response system, to your parasympathetic system that says it's okay to rest and digest and think and strategize and pursue longer term goals now. Mm-hmm. So you can turn off that automatic brain. Um, and then you can ask yourself, why does the reptilian brain want me? What does this emergency response system want me to have the candy bar now? Uh, and it says, well, you know, it's only one, only one bite's not going to hurt. Well, it's not true. One bite always seems to hurt because it's never just one bite. Yeah. And one bite is the difference between me making decisions with my intellect versus my whims and emotions. It's, a di- it's the difference between me being in charge versus my reptilian brain being in charge. It's the difference between feeling proud of myself versus feeling upset for not being able to, to control myself. It's a really big difference, that one bite. I'm not going to do it. Mm. So you, can, you can disempower And then once you've disempowered, you can retrain that survival impulse and say, well, what do I need? Maybe I needed it. Maybe I needed some energy. Maybe I need a piece of whole fruit or a kale banana smoothie. That's how I got off the chocolate, by the way. I started making a lot of kale kale banana smoothies and it wouldn't wouldn't be as pleasurable as a chocolate bar would, but it would scratch the itch. And, and when you're saying chocolate bar, you're not saying 85% dark cocoa, um, couple of squares. You're saying like um, like a Mars bar kind of thing, right? Well, I mean, for, I mean, yes, for most people. For me, I eventually had to give up chocolate altogether. Mm-hmm. Most of my clients, two out of three of my clients, don't give up those things, and they will distinguish between you know healthier chocolates and less healthier chocolates. But I don't tell anybody what to eat or not to eat. Yeah. Um, people do their own research and talk to their own dietitians and decide what's healthy for them and what's not healthy for them. And then they, I argue for making very specific rules that, that show you where the line is so that you know when you're about to cross it. Yeah. Um, and that way you have control. Mm. So you could say, I'm really gonna... what it is, isn't it? It's you are running the show. That's where you want to arrive. That's where you want to arrive. You want to be the boss. Mm. addiction is less about giving up any particular food and more about really being the boss of your own mind and being able to interfere with the automaticity of these loops and make your own decisions that's really what what it's about yeah and and so i just want to ask a, a question here for neurodivergent people people with ocd adhd who might be binge eating right now but the lack of executive function or other psychiatric challenges might, um, you know, might have had them buy a billion notebooks to do a bunch of journaling and try and get to things. And but then that something just isn't working because of the structure of their brain at that point or chronically. How do we know when when we arrive at a, a moment where we do actually need more medical support, uh, Glenn? Um, well, it's always safer to have a medical evaluation first. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I actually don't offer this as even a psychological treatment. I offer this as education and training and we have a coaching program um, and people sign informed consent saying that, you know, they have medical treatment and um, that 
you know, they've discussed this with them. And so, so I don't want to mislead people in any way to let, let them think this is a cure for ADHD or anything like that. What I find with those kinds of people is, is that usually it's not that it doesn't work, but it takes longer. Mm. Um, if you the one thing that will interfere with this thing working is if you have trouble with formal reasoning. If if you yeah. if you can't really look at an argument and figure out what might be wrong with it um, by looking at the different pieces and parts of the argument and then uh, taking it apart, mm. then then it becomes difficult to use this technique, or at least the rational part of this technique. You can still yeah. use you can still use clear rules to identify when the lizard brain is active, and you can still use breathing and mindful techniques when you wake up and realize the lizard brain is active. It's just that you wouldn't really be able to utilize the um, we call them refutations the mm-hmm. the part the part which says you can't start tomorrow because you're going to reinforce the craving and the thought. Um, what fires together wires together. If you're in the hole, stop digging. Um, you know, you can only ever use the present moment to be healthy. If that doesn't make sense to you yes. um, as, a, as a response to just start tomorrow, then this is a technique that's not going to work really well for you. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. That's brilliant. Um, sure. Uh, Okay, so I, I want to actually ask about uh, the the way you categorize foods because I think that's super helpful uh, on people's journey to to creating some sense of order and being in charge and really owning uh, how you run your week when it comes to food. Uh, you know, I mentioned the slice of chocolate cake at a friend's birthday and and not chastising yourself and saying, oh, my gosh, this is it. I'm obviously a failure and I'm going to go back to being candy bar person now because clearly I can't be the other person. Um, you organise things in such a way that there's actually space for that piece of chocolate cake at the friend's birthday uh, and it's really useful to compartmentalise. Can you talk us through that? Yes, I, I will say that um, two out of three people are able to conditionally manage sugar, flour, alcohol, um, and one out of three people will have trouble with one of those, one or more of those substances. So many people will say, I, on a day-to-day basis, I never have chocolate. Um, but when I'm at a birthday party or a holiday, I can have one dessert of my choosing no matter what, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we categorize different types of rules. So there are never rules never rules are things that would eliminate things from your diet entirely and by the way we use that language um to present the food plan or food rules to the reptilian brain Mm. you you can change your rules over time with experience and you know forethought and consideration but your reptilian brain is not mature enough to think that someday you're going to be able to do differently. You mm. have to present it as if it's set in stone. But the same way that I told my two-year-old niece when she was two, she's 19 now, but <laughs> when she was two, I told her that she could never, ever cross the street without holding my hand. Of course, I'm going to teach her to cross the street when she's older or her sister would. But um, when she was two, I don't even want that image popping into her brain. And that's the way you want to treat your reptilian brain. That, that seed of automaticity as if it was a two-year-old child who has to have things set in stone. So, but 
but you phrase those rules in such a way that um, you can never do something or there are some things you can do on the weekends. Uh, maybe you'll say I'll only have pretzels at a major league baseball game or something like that. You can, you can use a variety of different, like the limit is your, your imagination. Um, and you think of it like an archery target, like you're aiming for the, for the bullseye, which has a very specific boundary, but then there are concentric circles that have wider boundaries and you know when they apply. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's how we suggest that people set up their, um, their aim, what, what they're really aiming for. And then if you, if you miss the target, like, okay, by how much, in what direction, what adjustments do I need to make? And you get up and you aim with perfection again. Mm. And is that where journaling and self-reflection become a critical part of the process? Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you miss the bullseye, you want to ask yourself why. Mm. And is the bullseye still the right bullseye that I should be aiming for? Was it misidentified in any way? Is there a problem with the rule I was trying to go for? Or was it that there was a, um, we call them a squeal because if you're, I called my inner lizard brain my my pig, and when it would say things to get me to cross the line, I would say it was squealing. I was never going to publish this, mm -hmm. um, and and so there can be a squeal that causes you to miss the bullseye because it kind of got you not to aim for it in the first place, um, and then you need to do the kind of rational disempowerment that we we talked about. And journaling is a very good part of that, mm -hmm. um, but. This is not intended to be an ongoing work project. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. So, the, like, it, it does it end? <laughs> Do we arrive? Um, with any given rule. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at the progression of the chocolate rule for me, first I didn't have it during the week, and I kind of managed to make that stick. And then I didn't really have to. Um, I didn't have to. Do these techniques anymore to not have chocolate during the week then i came to the point that i decided i wanted to give it up entirely again two out of two out of three people never do that and it's fine but i decided i wanted to give it up entirely so i had to do more work again because i hadn't really dealt with the squeals related to all the weekend triggers i was in a different environment in the weekend than i was during the week um and then eventually a couple of years later so maybe it took two or three months to really install that and then every now and then, after two or three months, the pig would say something I hadn't recognized and I'd have to work a little bit, but really not much at all. Mm. Um, a couple of years later, I didn't even really need the rule. A couple of years later, I just become someone who doesn't eat chocolate, and that was that. And so I think of all of these tools and techniques as behavior installation routines. There are things that you... Um, implement when you're aiming for a new bullseye, when there's a new discipline you want to install in your life, when you want it to, be to become part of your character. Um, and then, you know, for like a 30 to 60 day period, you have to work pretty hard at it because the pig will go crazy. Your reptilian brain will go crazy trying to convince you otherwise. Um, you might make some mistakes. It kind of resets the clock when you make some mistakes. But 30 to 60 days, and then it really starts to die down. Um, and eventually it just becomes part of you and you don't need it anymore. Yeah. Okay. Uh... Be, 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 because the purpose, you can think of the refutation of the rational refutation as like an operation. You're putting your reptilian brain on the table. You're looking at its cancerous logic. You're cutting out the cancerous logic. So it can't use that on you again. It, it's not a debate. The, the reptilian brain is not an equal. 
Yes. And, and what, what I love about what you've just added there about putting it on an operating table and cutting out the cancerous logic, would you encourage people to find their own powerful analogy for this? Because I feel like that's a huge part of mm-hmm. behavior change is when it actually finally super deeply makes sense and is logical to you on a very personal level. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I tried to quit smoking twice and it was because I knew other people thought I should. I knew it was a good idea in principle, but it was still not a great idea to me deeply personally. I had not done that work to fully um, analyze exactly why I thought it was wrong personally and what it was harming me for and therefore how I was going to move forward and what rules I was going to set up. Yeah. Well, that, so, that's that, why I insist yeah. that's why I insist on people taking their own rules. Mm. I, I and, won't tell and having your own names as well. Like you keep almost apologizing for calling your inner lizard braid the pig. But you know, I think what your point is there is that it doesn't have to be that for you out there who has who, who wants no, pe- pe- people will call it a food monster or a food mm. demon or the reptilian brain, or sometimes kids will call it um, some other kid in school they don't like. It's, it's kind <laughs> nice. of nice. But they, it, it, it's not a cute pet, though. It's mm. because, by definition, it consists of all of the thoughts, ideas, images, and impulses that suggest you do destructive things. Um, you want to be able to aggressively separate from it at the moment of impulse. You don't want to feel sorry for it. Or this is not like the concept of an inner wounded child who might behave in a bratty way because it really needs love. If you think that you're going to be too kind to it and you're not going to be as uh, ruthlessly dominant as you need to be to use this method to, to recover. Yeah. And I love this. Uh, So can I ask about what, the first couple of days looks like of using this method? Well, what you want to do is start with one simple rule. Yeah. Remember, um, most overeaters are also really good dieters. They've kept themselves on a kind of feast and famine roller coaster for years. Mm. They go through a panicked overeating cycle and they say, oh my God, I have to make up for it. I'm going to be really, really good. And it's like that nursery rhyme when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. That's the cycle that most overeaters follow. The problem with that is that you're signaling your primitive brain that you live in a feast and famine environment, which is which is how we evolved, right? I don't think that food was plentiful all the time. I think that we largely had to hunt and scavenge for food and we would occasionally have a harvest or a catch. And when we did, we had to eat as much as possible. Uh, in today's in today's food environment, that's horrific. Our natural brains are really not matched to today's food environment where everything is ubiquitous and concentrated. So the reason I'm telling you that is that you want to avoid making a whole bunch of rules and going on a really strict diet right away. That's Mm -hmm. what most people want to do. Instead, I tell people to start with one simple rule. What's one simple thing that you could and would do. It wouldn't be too onerous. You know you could successfully do it, yet it would still point you in the right direction. Examples might be, I'll never go back for seconds. I knew this trucker was on the road all the time eating at fast food places three times a day. He said, I'm not gonna stop eating at fast food places, but I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. And he just, you know, he started to win. 
he didn't lose all of his weight like that, but he started to win. He started to feel a sense of control, started to kind of left the sense of despair and panic and powerlessness. And then you build on that over time with another rule in a couple of weeks. Um, another thing might be, you know, I won't eat after eight o'clock at home. It's okay if I'm out with friends or something, but at home, I'm not going to eat after eight o'clock. Or I'll always put my fork down between bites or I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Mm. Something that you could and would do that's really simple, um, yet it would make a big difference. Once you do that, then remember the procedure is you wait until there's a little voice in your head that suggests that you should cross that line. You, you write down the rule, read it every morning so you know what it is. And then sometime during the day, there will probably be a little voice in your head that says, you know, you could cross this because X, Y, or Z. It's like a game. Mm. It's a game, game that you're playing with yourself. Um, when you hear that, you say, okay, there it is. There's that reptilian brain. I, um, I never listen to the reptilian brain, but let's find out what it's saying. So it's saying, you know, uh, let's see another one we haven't talked about. Um, just a little bit won't hurt or we can start tomorrow or, um, oh, I know what, I know what it, it says. It says, this is going to be torture forever. You can't live with these cravings forever. So you might as well give in now. Right. Oh, so, so that's a good one. Mm -hmm. So you take your 7-Eleven breath and you write that down and you say, okay, well, why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong because cravings don't last forever. The brain is not set up to waste energy. It's kind of like a prisoner that's given a life sentence. If it recognizes that it's not going to get reinforced, it wants it gives up hope eventually. It doesn't want to waste that energy. So your cravings will, they don't go straight down over time. When you quit something, they actually go, they go down for a little bit, and then there's a real spike. It's like the brain is desperate to go find its stuff again. Um, and then they start to go down. And then there are a couple of little spikes before it's all over. Um, the research suggests that the extinction curve takes like 20 to 30 exposures. So if it's something you're doing every day, you should be done with the cravings largely by the end of the month. Mm -hmm. If it's something that you do only on Saturdays, it's going to take longer before you can really extinguish that. Um, but you're not going to be tortured forever. The, the cravings go away over time. The brain will also say nothing else tastes good right? Mm. Uh, I, I don't like fruits and vegetables. Everybody says you have to eat fruits and vegetables to lose weight, but I don't like fruits and vegetables. Well, you don't have to believe me about this, but you just have to theoretically understand it and give it a shot. There, there's a phenomenon called downregulation and upregulation. Downregulation means when the brain is exposed to a very powerful stimulus over time, it downgrades its response to that. So in graduate school, I had an apartment that was right underneath the subway and I had no idea how I was ever going to sleep. In the first week or so, I couldn't sleep at all. Mm. But by the middle of the second week, I, the train didn't quite sound as loud to me. And then three, four weeks in, I didn't even hear the train. I'd sleep like a baby straight through it mm. because my brain down-regulated to that super-sized stimulus. If you have a chocolate bar every day, then your brain is going to down-regulate its pleasure response to sugar. And apples are not going to taste naturally sweet to you. And neither are, you know, certain vegetables. They're actually sugar in, in different vegetables and it contributes to the pleasure response. Um, there's research that suggests that when you take the crap out of your diet or largely take it out of your diet, that your taste buds double in sensitivity over the course of six to eight weeks. They upregulate, just like 
when I went back out into the country, then I could hear the trains again. When I wasn't sleeping underneath the subway every day, then a month or two later, I could hear all the trains again. So, um, so, so you want to make this one simple rule, read it in the morning, take your 7-Eleven breaths, write down what your reptilian brain or your food monster or your pig is telling you to, to do to break the rules. Ask why it's wrong, write that down also. And then the last step is to ask yourself, what, um, what does my body actually need? If you go with the assumption that addiction is a biological error, we didn't have chocolate bars on the Savannah, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that when you're craving a chocolate bar, your survival drive has been taught that that's where the good stuff is. That's where it's supposed to get its energy from. But really, it's a very strong concentration, an artificial concentration of sugar and fat and theobramine and other stimulants that just doesn't exist in nature. Um, what does your body need? Does you, do you need a little fruit? Do you need a little protein? Um, something different? Maybe you needed a nap? What healthy thing does your body need? So don't try to white knuckle and ignore your genuine biological needs. Make sure you're flooding your body with nutrition and taking good care of yourself um, so that the squeal that says, oh my God, we're starving. We have to do something. We have to have the chocolate. So that doesn't seem realistic to you. So mm. I love that you mentioned maybe you need a nap, Glenn, because you know the idea of hitting a super sugary snack means you need an upper, which means you don't have energy right now. One of the best ways to get more energy is to sleep. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and it's, it's, it's rare that the body will sleep more than it needs. So if mm. you're tired, you probably do need a nap. Yeah. Mm. Yesterday I had a nap for an hour. Um, old me probably would have pushed through, grabbed a coffee or a cup of tea and, and had a big chunk of chocolate to give myself a boost for the afternoon. But Woman after my own heart. No, I'm, yeah. I'm, a nap, I'm a napper for sure. Mm. Yeah. Love that. Okay. So there are actually some tools that you provide for people um, without having to buy the book, which is extremely generous uh, on your website, but it gives people a taster of what to expect um, if, if they did go on ahead and buy your book, which I highly recommend. I think so, the, the book many, is... of us, so many of us are, are intertwined with a system that does not do us a great service. Uh, and yeah. waking up to that system is huge. Whether, you know, like, yeah, I, I just think it's it's really powerful to start thinking about this wherever you're at with food. Even if you have a really healthy relationship, it's it's a great preventative so. strategy, right? Alex, the, the book is free on my website for Kindle, Nook, or PDF, the electronic formats. Oh, amazing. If you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button, mm-hmm you can download the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We, we don't have Audible and paperback, but there's a charge for that. And when you sign up to get the book for free, you will also get um, a set of food plan starter templates. So this is a diet agnostic program. It works with any reasonable dietary philosophy. Yeah. You can't use it to starve yourself, but if you're going to flood your body with nutrition, it doesn't matter so much if you're ketogenic versus you know, whole foods, plant-based or point counters or calorie counters. It it can work for any of those systems. And we created a set of starter rules for you to evaluate to see if you want to adopt any of them or what you want to do. You got to take responsibility for your own. So you need to, you know, adopt them and change them. 
Um, but we got food plan starter templates and, um, and I know this sounds really weird. Like, why does Alex have a doctor who's got a pig inside of him? On, <laughs> uh, on it doesn't sound show. weird at all. Trust me, my guys are always along for the ride. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds kind of harsh in theory, but it's actually very compassionate in its implementation. And if you, um, you, you listen to some recorded coaching sessions, which you'll also get for free at nevermidgeagain.com, then you'll see how I take people from feeling despairing and hopeless and powerless to feeling powerful and enthusiastic and hopeful in just one session. So nevermidgeagain.com, click the big red button. Oh, you're a man after my own heart, Glenn. I remember when uh, I created my Real Food Rockstars program, which is simply just helping people towards a real food system versus an ultra-processed food system. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the second week, everyone was like, where's the program? Where are the recipes? Tell me exactly what I have to eat. And it really illustrated for me how externalised the conversation has become around what to eat and where the answers are. But what I love about your work is you're actually inviting us, as I love to do as well, which is why it's so powerful, I think, to find our own conversation, our own responses, our own answers within, because that creates personal responsibility, which actually then creates the map of success. Yes. Yeah. Very powerful. Thank you so much for joining us, Glenn. I love your Thank work. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. I really appreciate. I say, I swear, I have, um, I have eight coaches that work with me now. I think, and we've written oh, seven brilliant. books, and we're and we're, a cat, uh, as I saw in the background. I, I have a cat. <laughs> he's, not, he, he's not doing so well. He keeps throwing oh. up. I keep taking him back to the vet. Oh. Um, yes, I, I do have a cat too. His name is Theo. Yeah, cute. Well, I have yeah, a retriever, and and he's just out there as well. So oh, um, yeah, yeah. Animals are very pure souls. They are. They are. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm excited for our community to get to know yours. And uh, here's to just owning our relationship with food. I think that's what's really powerful about this. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Lovely. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us 
get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Low Tox Life.